Good morning, friends. Good morning to you from all over the world. I'm so excited uh, to have you here today. We are going to do... Good morning, Lou. Good morning. How are we doing today? Good. We're going to be a little ambitious today. I'm going to try and get uh, done with uh, chapter six uh, today. So I'm going to do a lot more verses in each episode. So bear with me, friends. So in chapter six, today's episode, we're going to do verses 36 through 41. Quite a few to be done, but they're fairly short. Mm -hmm. uh, so verse 36 uh, Krishna says to Arjuna, and, and this is an interesting one, friends, because towards the end, you'll see something that I find very interesting, which is what happens after you die and before you come back to life again. That's something that has always been fascinating to me, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But to get there, um, Krishna says, yoga, I think, is hard to attain by one who is uncontrolled, but it can be attained by one who is controlled by, mean of, by means of striving, by working hard. So what Krishna is saying here, again, the same psychology as we were talking about in the last episode, is that when somebody is, gives a different opinion than yourself, the best way to counteract that is not to say, no, you're wrong, but to say, what you're saying is correct, Arjuna, you're right that it's hard to attain by one who's uncontrolled. So you've agreed with him. Now you're saying, but it can be attained by one who is controlled in his mind by means of striving. What he's saying is, you know, if you want to go to, to if you want to get self-realized, you can't just do it as a part-time thing. You know, you go to the temple or church or mosque one day of the week and you pray and you say, okay, fine, you know, now I did my duty. The rest of the week, you're swindling people, doing all kinds of bad things. Uh, doesn't work. It's got to be a consistent thing. Um, and actually, you have to think to yourself, why am I not able to do this? That's an important question to ask yourself. Yeah, very. If you know that that's what you want to do, think to yourself, why am I not able to do it? And the reason is, what is the problem? How can I make my personality grow? How can I get to a self-realization? And the issue really is your desires, which have come to you from many, many lives before. It's not just from this life. And the desires are so great that it pulls you along with it. But you, each time you fulfill a desire or you don't fulfill a desire, either way, you're just making the desires grow and you're becoming more bound to the world. So what he's saying is you need to put in more effort. And like we said in a previous verse, vairagya, which is renunciation, comes from knowledge, not from willpower. You can't say, I'm going to force myself to not do it. It comes from knowledge. And that's what takes these vasanas, the desires away. And abhyasa is from routine, daily habit and study. It doesn't go away just by willing it away, not by willpower. So the next three verses, 37, 38, and 39, Arjuna asks again the question. Arjuna says in 37, the uncontrolled who possesses shraddha, which is faith and devotion, whose mind wanders away from yoga, failing to attain perfection in yoga, what end does he meet, O Krishna? Yoga here means united with the self or the Atman. And in verse 38, he says, fallen from both. That means in the present life 
time as well as from self-realization. Mm -hmm. Does he not perish like a rent cloud, supportless and deluded in the path of Brahman? And 39, Arjuna says, this doubt of mine, O Krishna, you should dispel completely. For there is none other than you, Krishna, to dispel this doubt. So bottom line is, Arjuna is saying to Krishna, what happens to those people who try very hard in this lifetime and get somewhere in their life, but not 100%? They're not self-realized, so they have to be born again. So that person, he says, Krishna, Arjuna says, is neither enjoying himself in this life, nor has he gotten self-realization. Hasn't he just wasted all his efforts and times? And that's what Krishna will answer. So Arjuna says, what happens to a seeker who doesn't become self-realized? What end does he meet? What happens to him? He's missed out on all the possible enjoyments of this life. And what happens is as you get more self-developed, not self-realized, even if you move just a little bit on that spectrum, Things that used to make great enjoyment for you, used to be of great enjoyment, no longer have value. So you get invited to parties and you say, I, I really don't care whether I go or don't go. I, I can tell you that from personal experience, shopping, going to malls, uh, doing things that otherwise would have been of great enjoyment to you no longer have it. You feel more at peace if you don't go. Uh, accumulating things, acquiring things, um, false bravado, false showing off of things that you have, you own, all of that uh, gets gets just put aside. It's interesting. We can almost see this progress in our lives as we go along because as you gain more knowledge, as you uh, find more where peace comes from as opposed to pleasure, this happens to you in the course of our lives too. So that's one signal of progress, isn't it? It's a great signal of progress. And you can actually measure that within yourself to say, and I can do this. I can do that from my own personal experience. I can tell you that you can measure it to say, you know, I, I don't really care. I lose something that is of great value in the past. I would have been upset. Now I say, okay, lost it. Doesn't matter. It doesn't have any attachment, no value to it. Don't go to parties. Don't go shopping. It doesn't really bother me. You so, just find more peace, more and more peace as you go. Yes. And what happens is as your mind becomes more peaceful, you become more focused. And as you become more focused, your mind, because it's clearer, more focused, you become more productive. And because you're more productive, you're more successful. Right. And so all of that gives you great benefits in this lifetime, number one. Number two, when you die, that goes on to the next end. So we'll come to that. So the permanent benefit remains whatever when you die you take all of this you don't take the wealth with you you don't take your beauty you don't take your uh, reputation your fame none of that goes with you the only thing that goes with you is your subtle body and your vasanas your causal body so your mind intellect your vasanas goes with you to the next life the body is totally new so we will get to that so in verse 38, he says, fallen from both, does he not perish like a rent cloud, supportless and deluded in the path of Brahman? So while he's looking for Brahman, he says, you know, when you look up in the sky and you look at these clouds, rain clouds, when they're all tightly knit together, they're supporting each other. They're full of water vapor. 
And but once one cloud sort of separates and goes away, it's a rent cloud. And pretty soon it just sort of disintegrates and disappears. So he's saying that if I don't have the support of my friends, my colleagues, these parties, all things, don't won't I just perish like a rent cloud? Um, so um, no social gatherings, etc. And Plato gives the allegory of the cave. Gautam Jain was the first one that told me about, told us about it, and I looked it up and other allegories. You should look it up. Lou, are you familiar with this? No, this is new to me. I'm very excited. Yeah, so Plato has a lot of metaphors and allegories. If you look it up on Wikipedia or on Google, Plato said that imagine that there is a world where people are living underground in a dark cave. They've never seen the sunlight. They've never seen outside the cave. And this whole tribe is sort of tied inside. They're chained to the walls with chains. They can't move, but in front of them is a fire. And the fire is burning. And the only entertainment they have in their lives is the shadows of themselves on the walls behind them. Yeah. And so there's no sunlight. The fire keeps going and the entertainment they have is from the, the shadows, one person becomes free. And they say, okay, well, just stay here in these shadows, even though you're free. And he says, no, I want to look to see what's on the, what else is out there. And they all yell at him. They say, it's all <laughs> dark over there other than the fire. You're not going to be able to see anything. So he starts on his journey. And initially, he can see not even five inches in front of him in front of his nose it's so dark but as he keeps going and going going he sees a little diamond in front of him and he says what is that and that is the light coming from the opening at the end of the cave the sunlight coming and he right. sees it as a tiny little diamond and he says i've got to get there so he keeps walking keeps working at it keeps working then he goes and he sees that the, there's an opening he sees the sun and he says, wonderful, look at this. He's so happy. He's never seen anything like this. Now, two things can happen at that point. So, of course, the allegory is that all of us on this earth are in darkness. The shadows are what we are, Maya, that we are looking at. And we're just imagining all of these things that we're, we think are fun for us. Uh, and they're just shadows. That's basically, it's just a dream. Right. And when a self-realized person working hard goes through darkness and everything that he doesn't know what is going to come, he suddenly sees a small little speck of light at the end and he pursues it, he comes to self-realization. Then there are two kinds of people who become self-realized. One is those that just sort of stay by themselves in the Himalayas and, you know, uh, get self moksha, self-realized. And those others who turn around and come back into the cave and then go and tell people to listen, you, there's more to life than this cave. You know, you've got to go out. So that's basically the allegory of the cave. And... Um, it, 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 Gautam Jain thought that it was a good point to introduce that over yeah. here. So I'm, I'm using that to explain it to everybody else. Verse 39, as you, as you heard before, this doubt of mine you should dispel completely, Krishna, for there's none other than you to dispel this doubt. This is the completion of Arjuna's question. So why does the Gita take three questions to answer, ask a question that's fairly simple? You know, we could have just asked it in one question. And there's debate about why this is so. And one thought is 
that as with the philosophy and psychology of the Gita, that it teaches us that when you're a teacher like Krishna is a master, he's a spiritual master, he allows Arjuna to go on asking the question so that the question gets firmly formulated in his own mind. Right. And that as he's asking the question, even that sort of fixates in his mind. So Krishna lets him keep talking. Um, he could have answered it in one question alone. So that's all there is to this uh, verse 39. Verse 40 says, Sri Bhagwan, Krishna says, neither here nor even hereafter is there destruction for him who tries. Verily, none who does good comes to grief. So here he gives the answers to Arjuna's questions of 37, 38, 39. He's saying that people who follow this path during their current lifetime will gain peace of mind and happiness, even if they don't get to be self-realized. Knowledge of life and of living the right way. The mind learned this, learns this and comes and it carries it to the next life. So the next life when he or she is reborn, the person is happy and has a good disposition. So what has happened is to the extent you grow spiritually in this life, to that extent you gain peace. Your mind becomes peaceful. Your selfish desires, which were the ones that were making the noise all the time, disappear. And when your mind is peaceful and calm, you become more productive, you focus better, you have peace, happiness, calm, and you're more productive, more successful and prosperous. So you gain in this lifetime too, and you carry it over into your next life, your mind, your intellect, and your vasanas. You don't carry anything else. And the last verse which we're going to do in this episode is, having attained to the worlds of the righteous, and having dwelt there for eternal year, years, he who has fallen from yoga is born in the house of the pure and wealthy. So he's saying here that a person who has led a life of good deeds, good karma, and peaceful pursuits with studying the scriptures achieves a peace of mind and happiness during this lifetime, if not self-realization. But after death, he's peaceful and happy in the afterlife until he's born again. This is what we need to talk about, this afterlife. That's something that wow. I find very interesting, and I think you will too. And when he's reborn, he's born in the home of a pure family. Pure family means a family whose hearts are pure, no agitation, no sorrow, no uh, passions for uh, things that, that would otherwise distract them from spiritual uh, courses, or a wealthy spiritual family. So that there's enough wealth to satisfy their needs so they can devote their energies to spiritual pursuits. So wealth is Vishnu, who is the um, maintainer. That Vishnu is married to Lakshmi, who is wealth. And in order to maintain one's life, one, you need the wealth, right. just like Vishnu needs Lakshmi. Without wealth, you can't say, I don't need anything. With wealth, you can say, okay, now my needs are met. I can follow the spiritual path. From birth to death, your mind uses your body to fulfill your desires. This is important. So if I say, you know, I have to um, watch a movie um, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but it's only 12 o'clock right now. So let me um, have some Chinese food first. 
<laughs> so yet I have I'm hungry for lunch. Let me have Chinese food. So the thought of Chinese food comes. My desire comes. My mind says I want Chinese food. So right. It says okay, get up, get your wallet, put it in your pocket. All of these are actions now that the body is doing, and it starts to walk towards the ch nearest Chinese uh, store or um, drive to a nearest Chinese restaurant. And this all started with the thought, I want some Chinese food. Exactly. Yeah. So the desire and the mind causes the body to take action in order to fulfill its desire. Then it says, looks at the clock. The mind says, okay, it's almost three o'clock. Let me rush back. So the body then makes its actions to drive the person back home in order to watch the movie on TV, say at three o'clock or to the movie theater. When the movie is going on, the body's sitting there eating popcorn, getting popcorn, stuff like that. And then when the movie is over, the mind says, okay, now I want to go home and do this. So then the body takes the actions. So essentially your whole life, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go back to sleep and throughout your life from birth to death, your body is doing exactly what your mind wants it to do. When the body is unable, here's the key, when the body is unable to follow the dictates of the mind and the mind says, I'm no longer able to fulfill my desires, my vasanas can no longer be met in this lifetime because the body is not able to handle it or the environment is not able to give me my vasanas, then the mind says, I, I need to go to a different life. I need to take a different body. Right. So there's two kinds of two things here. One is your own body becomes decrepit and you say, I can't do this anymore. And the second is that your body is hale and hearty, but you're saying this lifetime, this environment, this culture, and we'll talk about that when you come back to life, you choose a body and you also choose the environment in which you're born and the culture around you and your personality, etc. And if that's no longer being met, certain things happen that cause you to say, okay, I need to quit. I need to exit, play a different game with a different body in a different life. And, and that's why people die even while their bodies are young and able to do. So it's a more complicated thing than that. I'm doing it just very briefly yeah. here. How many times so, have we seen with people who just essentially give up on life? I've, often we see it with older couples. The wife will die and the husband goes a couple weeks later. He's just basically given up. He's given up. So there's a will to live. You're right, Lou. There's a will to live and there's a will to die. And you can will yourself to die. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about people that think overtly that they want to live. But internally, something is happening that their desires are not being met. Their vasanas are not being fulfilled. But so you're, you're born, you'd use your body to fulfill this, but you want something else. Now, the clearest example, if you look at BBC's uh, nature videos or National Geographic, you know, you see how animals over millions of years have evolved to the point where giraffes have long necks or uh, beautiful birds. They're able to develop such phenomenal colors and be able to attract uh, birds of the opposite sex to them. And you say, how did they do that? How did they get these beautiful colors on them thing? And so when they have a desire that that's what I need, I need a long neck to be able to get the leaves on the top of the tree, that desire keeps coming back again and again, every generation and every life that comes after that, the neck gets a little longer or the bird develops a more beautiful plumage. It's not like that in the beginning. 
it happens over millions of years. Right. For human beings, it is, doesn't take millions of years, but it takes many lifetimes, lifetimes. And you do come back with a body that you like or a personality that you like that allows you to fulfill your vasanas, whatever those vasanas are. So um, you keep choosing the next body when the first body, the body that you're in now, no longer meets your needs. Think about it as you're going to sleep, you're having a dream, and then waking up. Mm -hmm. That period of the dream is where you're nothing but projection of your desires. So let's say you have a strong desire to, again, using the same analogy of eating Chinese food. What you're going to dream of that night is eating a lot of Chinese food. Now, you're, for those of you who followed me right from the beginning when I was talking about memoirs of a psychiatrist, you will know that when I was a medical student, I was fascinated by a book that I read by Freud, and that was Interpretation of Dreams. And so dreams and the mind are fascinating to me. So in that, he says, if you want go to sleep, he says, Freud said, that if you go to sleep and you're thirsty, you're going to dream of water because you have a desire for water. You're going to dream that you're standing under a nice cold waterfall. The water is coming down on you and you're just drinking water from that in order to preserve your sleep. Now, what he was saying is because the body has a need to sleep, it preserves it and the dream comes out in that. And he's true. He's right hmm. in that respect. But yeah. that's only for the bodily need of uh, hunger or thirst or something like that. What about other things that come out? The dreams have many different layers. When it comes out with another wish, whatever you wish, you wish for money or you wish for um, beauty or any kind of sensual needs that you have, they come out in your dreams. Those are your vasanas. Those are at a deep, deep, deeper level. So those, you go to sleep, your dream gets fulfilled in the dream, your desire gets fulfilled in the dream, and then you wake up. But you wake up in the same body. You die in one body, you wake up in the same body. The dream has fulfilled your desires in that dream. Right. When you die, you take your desires with you, and until your number comes up, and this depends on your karmas and what, uh, what is available, you have to wait, quote-unquote, in line. And we don't know how long that is that you're waiting, but this is the part that different religions have called heaven and hell. Right. You die, and when you come back to life with your same desires, during that time, those desires are playing out between death and birth. And when you come back to life, now as opposed to going to sleep and waking up in the same body, now your dreams, your desires, sorry, are being fulfilled now, but in a different body, a different world, a different family, a different lifetime. That's the difference. The difference is that you go, you die in one body, you wake up in another. And in the intermediate period, there's that heaven and hell. And what that means is that there's no physical area that's called heaven or hell. The Gita says, Upanishads say, that since your mind is still alive at the time, although it has no memory of family and other things, that vasanas are the only things that come about. And the vasanas make also guilt is still there. So all the bad 
thoughts that you have, the bad. Have you ever had, I have, I know, things that I just don't want to think about, things that just, if I think about it, it bothers me that how did I let this happen? I, 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 when I was a teenager, I'll, I'll let you all in a secret. When I was a teenager, I used to see out of my apartment window in um, Bombay, Mumbai, that there was a man who was whipping his boy with a leather belt. Hmm. And everybody in the building could hear the boy scream and the sound of the leather belt. And he was a violent man. And I felt I had to do something, but obviously I couldn't face this man. He was bigger than me. He was an adult. And in India at the time, a long story, I didn't do anything. Hmm. And the thought of that haunts me. I, and I, I have to push that thought out of my mind. I can't get it out of my mind. And I think that when I die, that same thought, that guilt that I did nothing and I just let day after day go by and I did nothing, it just haunts me. And I know that when I die, this thought will keep coming up. And so each one of us has some thought that you say, no, no, I don't want to think about that. Get it out of here. That is hell. When you die, and that thought keeps coming and you cannot do anything. Right now, I can turn the TV on. I can, I can walk. I can forget about it. I can distract myself. When I'm dead, there's no body. There's nothing. I don't know. And that is what the Gita and Upanishad says is hell. So it says, when you do something that is sinful, which comes back and hurts your mind, that is what sin is when it comes right. back, then you get mentally agitated and that's you're going to hell. So what it means is when you die and you're in limbo over there between death and birth, that thought that's going to disturb you is hell, hellish for you. And when you do a good thing, you're at peace. You're at, those people who have done nothing but good in their life, they have nothing to worry about. When they die, just like in their sleep, you know, I might have a nightmare. I might have some bad dreams. These people sleep, they have no bad dreams. They're peaceful. When they die, they're peaceful. They're in heaven when they die until they come back to life. Is that, uh, did, did I confuse the issue? No, I, no, I think it's perfect. And it's about um, disturbance of the mind. And that the definition, what we use as the definition of sin is anything that disturbs the mind that, that robs you of peace is right. sin, right? And so that's what you're going to deal with in between lives. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So one last thing that in Sanskrit, um, how long have we gone, Lou, so far? We're 27 minutes in. Okay, good. So um, in Sanskrit, heaven is called Swarga. Swarga. And hell is called Narka. Swarga and Narka. Mm -hmm. Now, <laughs> another area of interest of mine <clears throat> is the spread of people from India to the rest of the world going back thousands of years BCE. And so this is just an aside, Lou, bear with me. Yep. Friends, bear with me. This is an aside, but I just have to tell you this. Shiva and Parvati, the Lord Shiva and Parvati had two sons. One is Ganesh, which is the god with the elephant head. And his brother is Skand. So Skand was Shiva's, uh, Shiva's son, Ganesh's brother, but he was a warrior. He always fought. He he was had a and he fought not with an army but with a navy. He had a navy. He had he was like a Viking. Right. He had big ships with like 
demoness faces on the ships. <laughs> He'd never shaved. His hair was long, didn't bathe. And they went for voyages around the world all the time. Anyway, it was said that Skand came to one place in the world that he said, when I go there and it's summertime, it's heaven. When I go there and it's wintertime, it's hell. So those oh he came lands, to New England I guess sorry <laughs> he came here to New England I guess yeah 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 well <laughs> he that place that he landed because his name was Skund was called and he, he got there in the navy his navy and the word Navia in Sanskrit is means navy so Scandinavia or Scandinavia was oh. the name given to that and. Swarg, if you know Sweden, Sweden and Norway are British names, English names for the original names of the countries. If you look at the ships that come from Sweden, it says Sverg, S-V-E-R-G-E, Sverg, which is the Sanskrit name for heaven. And the Sanskrit word for the real original name for Norway is Norg, N-O-R-G-E, uh, which is Nurk, which is hell, hell. Not that Norway is yeah. hell. Or that's, but it's just that in winter, both Sweden and Norway are cold and dark 24 hours a day. So it's like hell, but in summer, it's light all time. So it's like heaven. So right. just an aside, friends, just to break it up a little bit. Uh, it's an interesting story. I like it. All right. So thank you very much. I'd love to hear your comments and looking forward to seeing you in the next episode.